0: misappropriation noun the act of appropriating wrongly as by theft or embezzlement from the latin prefix mis, meaning bad or wrong and the latin word appropriare meaning to make one's own mm. Hello, heist enthusiasts, and welcome to another episode of Misappropriation, the podcast for people who, like me, love heists. The story I have for you today is the second part of the story of George Leonidas Leslie, the king of bank robbers. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I'd recommend listening to that one first. When we left off, George Leslie was fresh off his Northampton National Bank heist. But the authorities were starting to get wise, and it captured many of the leaders of the Rufus Gang. Leslie was working on a plan to rob the Manhattan Savings Institution, a bank renowned for intense security measures and sure to have large amounts of cash and valuables on hand. At this point, George Leslie was leading not a double, but a triple life. To his wealthy New York associates, he was George Leslie, the rich businessman from Ohio. To his wife, he was George L. Howard, an IRS detective, and to his underworld connections, he was George Leslie, the man responsible for 80% of the bank robberies in the United States between 1869 and 1878. However, it was getting harder and harder to keep his multiple lives separate, especially because he was maintaining relationships with at least five women during this time period. First, there was Josie Mansfield, the woman who ran the Grand Opera House, and had been involved with Jubilee Jim Fisk. Eventually, Josie broke up with both George Leslie and Jim Fisk to marry Ned Stokes, one of Jim's business associates, who left his wife and his family for her. There were multiple lawsuits and countersuits between Ned Stokes and Jim Fisk, and they went back and forth in court until January 1872, when Ned Stokes shot Jim Fisk in a stairwell at the Grand Central Hotel after the whole love triangle became public. After Fisk's funeral, Leslie reportedly told Marm Mandelbaum that Fisk's only mistake had been trusting his girlfriend too much. Marm agreed and said it was a mistake men should avoid at all costs. This should have been considered foreshadowing. Second, there was a woman named Lena Kleinschmidt, sometimes called Black Lena. She was beautiful and made her money by seducing and then blackmailing or pickpocketing men. George Leslie met Lena at one of Marm Mandelbaum's dinner parties, Despite Marm insisting that Lena leave George alone, Lena was interested in him and slipped him an invitation to her home in New Jersey. Lena was trying to establish herself as someone like Marm Mandelbaum, a high-society woman with powerful underworld ties. She bought a house with the proceeds of her blackmail schemes and introduced herself to the city as the widow of a wealthy mine owner. Lena was making overtures to join up with Johnny the Mick Walsh, Marm's chief rival in New York City at this time. This combined with her trysts with Leslie, posed a threat to Marm's empire, so she decided that Lena had to go. Marm Mandelbaum had one of her pickpockets steal an emerald ring from someone in the circles Lena was courting, and then sent the ring to her, disguised as a present from George Leslie. Lena wore the ring to a party and showed it off as a gift from a secret admirer, not knowing that the ring's true owner was in attendance. A few days later. Her home was raided by Pinkerton detectives and police officers, and she was arrested and sent to jail. Shortly before, George Leslie and his crew pulled off their first heist at the Ocean National Bank. The third woman in George Leslie's life was his wife, Molly. After the San Francisco job that he planned for Ace Marvin, the Josie Mansfield, Jim Fisk, Ned Stokes Triangle was big scandalous news. In order to keep himself out of the lawsuits, drama, and murder that followed, Leslie spent some time in Philadelphia using the name George L. Howard. While there, he met Molly Coth. Leslie was immediately interested in her, but Molly had another suitor at the time, a thief named Pretty Tom. What a name. When Leslie expressed his interest in Molly to Mar Mandelbaum, she encouraged it. She was hoping he'd settle down and focus more on lucrative bank robberies and less on women. So, Mandelbaum hired Pretty Tom to break into a jewelry store. He followed her instructions exactly, including breaking a window to the store, which alerted the neighbors who called the police. Pretty Tom was arrested with a burlap sack full of jewelry and watches, leaving George Leslie free to woo Molly. They were married just two months later, and George moved Molly to New York. Molly allegedly never knew about George's real occupation, and believed that she was married to George Howard, an IRS detective, until his death. The fourth and fifth women were Red Leary's wife, Kate, and Shang Draper's wife-slash-Johnny Irving's sister, Babe. With Red Leary and Shang Draper both in and out of jail for various crimes, including their roles in the Northampton National Bank robbery, Leslie wasn't too worried about them catching on to his double affair. It's unclear if Kate or Babe knew about each other or Leslie's wife, Molly. It's important to understand George Leslie's complicated web of relationships and identities in order to understand just what happens next. George Leslie was planning the robbery of the Manhattan Savings Institution, but the bank was renowned for its security. So the planning was taking a while. In the meantime, Leslie's crew wanted more money. Says Leslie also planned a robbery of the Dexter Savings Bank in Dexter, Maine. Leslie took his usual crew of Red Leary, Billy Porter, Johnny Irving, Shang Draper, and Gilbert Yost for the job in February of 1878. He had bribed a bank employee, James Wilson Barron, to let them into the bank to plant the little joker in the safe's lock. Then, on the night of February 23rd, 1878, The crew dressed up in their theatrical disguises and went to the bank. Leslie came along on this robbery because he wanted to be sure his instructions were followed to the letter. One man, Billy Porter, was dressed as a janitor and he kept lookout, even exchanging waves with the police officer who was walking by on patrol. Barron, the bank employee, was supposed to let them into the bank a second time for the robbery and give them the keys that they would need to use in conjunction with the combination from the little joker to open the safe. But he never answered the door when they knocked. Eventually the crew got tired of waiting and broke down the side door to the bank. Baron was inside, but he'd gotten cold feet and had no intention of actually helping the crew rob the bank. He tried to back out, but Leslie told him it was too late and he needed to hand over the keys. The rest of the crew was getting frustrated, and Red Leary and Shang Draper grabbed Baron and threatened to beat him until he gave up the keys. Leslie was losing control of the situation. He told everyone to leave, but they refused to leave without the money. Draper pulled out a gun and hit Baron over the head with it. He fell to his knees and confessed that even if he did give them the keys, it wouldn't matter because the safe had a timed lock and would not be able to be opened until morning. Furious, Draper and Leary roughed up Baron, tied him up and then left him closed up in the small space between the inner and outer vault doors. They took $100 cash from one of the bank's cash drawers, and $500 from Barron's wallet, and then the whole crew fled. They got to the getaway sleigh driven by Johnny Irving and ran. Dexter, Maine, February 25th. The funeral of J.W. Barron, the murdered treasurer of the Dexter Savings Bank, was largely attended this afternoon. The inquest was concluded this morning, the verdict being that death was caused by violence at the hands of two or more unknown parties. A team left Dexter on Friday evening, about six o'clock, and was driven rapidly to Greenville and thence on to Moorhead Lake. It contained three men. A strange team was noticed on the outskirts of the village just before evening, driving very leisurely. The same team has been seen here under suspicious circumstances previously. The bank treasurer leaves a wife and one child, His life was insured for $16,000. Detectives from Boston reached Dexter on Sunday morning by special engine. The New York Times, February 26th, 1878. James Barron's death rattled George Leslie. He was now, at minimum, an accessory to murder. He sent Molly to Philadelphia and joined her there for a few weeks, hoping the news coverage of the heist and the murder would die down. Eventually, he met up with his crew again, but the dynamic had changed. Draper accused Leslie of being a liability to the rest of the crew. Leslie accused Draper of the murder, and things got heated. Draper lunged at Leslie, who pulled out a gun and stared him down. George Leslie was known to be an expert shot, but he was not known to carry a gun before the Dexter Savings Bank robbery. The weapon he now had was a small, two-shot, pearl-handled pistol. He started carrying it as protection from his own crew, knowing that they were turning on him. The trust was broken and they were arguing over blame for the murder, the division of potential gains from their next heist, and who might be a liability to the team. Marm Mandelbaum tried to intervene by suggesting that she would get all of the spoils and pay each robber a salary, but Leslie refused, insulted at the insinuation that she was taking responsibility for the heists. The plans were his, so he thought he deserved the biggest cut of the take. With the group fracturing. Leslie decided that the Manhattan Savings Institution robbery would be his last one. He also decided he wasn't going to do it with this team. George Leslie knew that the people he was working with were dangerous and he couldn't just tell them that he was done with them and moving on. They'd been planning and preparing for this bank robbery for three years. Leslie had constructed an exact replica Of the layout of the Manhattan Savings Institution in a warehouse for the team to practice. He'd bought a duplicate of the safe to learn to crack it efficiently. He opened an account at the bank and spent time ingratiating himself with the bank president. He'd planted an inside man, Pat Shevlin, a security guard, who worked at the bank for almost the entire three years the heist was being planned. The Manhattan Savings Institution was heavily secured, The massive concrete and steel vault was protected by three heavy steel doors, each with its own combination. Inside the vault itself were 25 steel safety deposit boxes full of the valuables of New York's rich and famous. George Leslie actually entered the bank after hours three separate times before the robbery. Shevlin let him in to practice opening the vault. His first time inside the building, he used the little joker to try and get the combination. He worked all night and left just before the bank opened, still unsuccessful. He'd ended up drilling a small hole into the dial and trying to align the gears of the lock manually, but in the process had damaged the lock enough that the next day it was impossible to open the vault. The bank, thinking that the tumblers of the lock had seized, replaced it, and Leslie had to start his safe-cracking all over again. He kept working with his duplicate safe, perfecting the little joker to be able to crack the sophisticated lock. Eventually. On March 15th, 1878, with the help of Gilbert Yost, Leslie was able to get the right combination and open the vault. However, he convinced his crew to wait to rob the bank until there would be more cash in it. This gave him a few weeks to practice his bank robbery with his secret second team. Unbeknownst to Marm Mandelbaum and his usual crew, George Leslie had reached out to Marm's chief rival, a man known as Traveling Mike Grady. Johnny the Mick Walsh had allied with Traveling Mike Grady several years before. Johnny the Mick Walsh was the man that Lena Kleinschmidt had tried to form an alliance with. Traveling Mike was intrigued when Leslie came to him with the combination for the vault at the Manhattan Savings Institution and a bold plan. He assigned Walsh to be Leslie's bodyguard because this plan was incredibly valuable and gave Leslie a handful of specially trusted accomplices. Leslie told his wife he was going on an undercover assignment for the IRS, and he would be back by the end of May. He had no way of knowing just what would happen next. At some point between George Leslie getting the combination for the safe and the date that he'd given his first crew for the robbery, Babe Draper had met up with him for a date, and she'd had a bruise on her face. When asked about it, she told Leslie that Shang Draper had hit her. George Leslie now had a famously violent enforcer as a bodyguard, so he no longer saw a need for his two-shot pearl-handled pistol. He gave it to Babe and told her that if Shang ever hit her again, she should use it on him. On the evening of May eighteen 1878, George Leslie was having a drink at a bar in Brooklyn when someone came up and handed him a note. It was from Babe Draper and it said that Shang had found out about their affair and was looking for Leslie and wanted to kill him. The note advised Leslie to leave the city, but to pick her up first so they could leave together. Babe said she'd be waiting for him at her house and that he should come quickly before Shang returned home. Leslie tore up the note, asked Walsh to hail him a cab and not follow him. He assured his bodyguard that he would be safe and left him behind. On June 4th, 1878, about a week later, George Leslie's body was discovered under some bushes a few miles outside Yonkers. He'd been shot twice, once in the head and once in the heart. Next to his body lay a two-shot, pearl-handled pistol. The murder of George Leslie was never officially solved. On October 27th, 1878, five months after Leslie's death, the Manhattan Savings Institution was robbed. Robbers had pried open the outer steel doors and then used the combination and some brute force from chisels and sledgehammers to open the vault door. They managed to open 15 of the 25 steel safety deposit boxes. According to the authorities, the haul was worth $2,747,700. That would be a little bit more than $81.4 million in 2022 money. It was the largest bank heist in American history, and it maintains that record today. However, the actual usable amount of money was much smaller. The robbery was committed by Leslie's first crew, and they had not learned from their mistakes in the Northampton National Bank heist. The thieves didn't look closely at what they were taking. They got $2,500,700 worth of non negotiable securities. But they left almost $2 million in cash bags on the floor of the vault completely untouched. The usable take was only about $12,000. Over the next few months, police were able to track down most of the bank robbery crew. Johnny Irving and Johnny the Mick Walsh were both killed in a shootout in Shang Draper's saloon in October of 1883. Red Leary died in 1888 after being hit over the head with a brick during an argument. Josie Mansfield eventually moved to Europe and married a wealthy lawyer. Marm Mandelbaum was arrested after a Pinkerton detective gained her trust, planted marked goods for stealing, and then showed the police where the marked goods that had been stolen were being kept. She spent only one night in jail and was released on a $15,000 bail. Just before she was set to go to trial in December of 1884, she gathered up almost a million dollars in cash and fled to Canada where she eventually died in 1894. Babe Draper was found murdered a few weeks after George Leslie. Molly, George's wife, went to live with family in the Midwest after his death. This story doesn't have a nice clean ending. George Leslie died before his final heist could take place, but he planned the three largest bank robberies in American history at that time, including the record for the most stolen in one robbery that still hasn't been broken. All of the other characters get caught and most of them die in prison or from violence. George Leslie was obviously brilliant and he had so many options in his life and so many good things going for him, but all he wanted to do was rob banks and have affairs. And he probably would have been fine if he'd chosen one or the other, but he seems like someone who was never satisfied with what he had. So I guess the lesson here is be grateful for what you have and don't sleep with your criminal co-workers' wives. This has been Misappropriation. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for another heist story. And if you want to learn more about George Leonidas Leslie and his many, many capers, you can read about it in a book that I read that was very helpful for this episode. And it's called King of Heists. It's by J North Conway. So enjoy your week. See you next time for more heists. Bye. Misappropriation is written and produced by me, Libby. The intro and theme music are by my brother, Emerson Parker of the band Omniphonia. His music can be found on Spotify. For more heist stories, follow slash subscribe to Misappropriation wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>